if you have a Bible, uh, you can open up to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 is where we are headed this morning as we continue our way through the book of Daniel this fall. And just like last week, I would love to ask for a couple of people who might be willing to help me read uh, from Daniel chapter 3. So, Bill, I saw you raise your hand. Can I get someone else, anyone else willing to, to help read our text? Janet, right? Awesome. So, if you guys want to, you got, you're already pretty close, um, so you may just be able to stay where you're seated. But um, I'll bring this over to you when it's time to read. Uh, So, uh, before we get to reading, a a quick review of the theme that we have been talking about as we have been uh, going through Daniel. And it's right there on the screen. Everlasting Kingdom. Uh, This is what we have been considering and looking at throughout this series. A couple weeks ago, we saw the book of Daniel open with the invasion of Jerusalem and the exile of the Jewish people. Their kingdom had been conquered, right? And so the question that hovers over the whole book of Daniel is this. Is God still king? Does God still reign? Right? That's the question at the heart of this book. And the book of Daniel responds to this question with a mix of stories and visions that all answer with a resounding yes. Yes, God still reigns. God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. This is the primary message of the book of Daniel. No matter the current circumstances, no matter the challenges that we are facing, God's kingdom remains. And God's kingdom is coming. That's the story of the book. Uh, We've talked a little bit about how seeing this as the primary message keeps us from making common mistakes as we read the book. Uh, Often the stories of Daniel are read primarily as inspiring hero tales, uh, or the visions of Daniel are, are read primarily as cryptic messages that we need to decode. And, and those ways of reading it get us off track because they ultimately are centered about ourselves. They're a good example for us to follow, or they're cryptic messages for us to decode so we can figure out what our future will be. But this story is about God, and it is about God's kingdom. And so this is what we need to keep before us as we read the story of Daniel. In chapter 1, we saw Daniel and his friends resist Babylonian transformation because their loyalty remained with God as their king. In chapter 2, last week, we saw Daniel interpret a vision about the impending arrival of God's kingdom that will displace all other kingdoms. And here, in chapter 3, we find the famous story of the fiery furnace, right? 
Uh, anyone ever seen, you know, flannel board of this story, you know, CGI vegetables of this story, right? It's a popular story uh, to be told. But once more, as we reflect on this story, we will see a picture of God as king and what life looks like in God's kingdom. So let's hear the story of Daniel chapter Three. We'll take turns reading uh, one slide each, and we can just pass the mic around. I'll, I'll join in. Uh, Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 60 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not... We want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. 
He ordered the furnace heated up seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men we tied up and threw in the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, thank you for the gift of your word and for this story that encourages and challenges us and proclaims you and your kingdom. God, as we consider the words of your scripture together today, we ask that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we've got Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, this classic story. There seems to be a natural link between Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 3 here. In chapter 2, Daniel interprets King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, right? You remember last week, there was this big statue with a head of gold. And Daniel says that head of gold represents King Nebuchadnezzar. So here, in chapter 3, what does he do? He sets up a big statue made of gold, right? 
Uh, it seems in many ways to be a case of, well, one thing led to another. Uh, the king listened to this dream and he responded and, and did what he had seen. Uh, there's another, however, more subtle link between chapters 2 and 3 that I think is crucial for understanding what is going on in this story. And I think that this is something that would have been clearly noticed by a Jewish reader, the original audience of this story. And, and that link between Genesis, uh, between Genesis, between Daniel chapter 2 and 3 is a reference back to the creation story in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, God acts as a king. He creates the heavens and the earth through royal decree and edict, right? He issues these kingly commands that are then immediately carried out. Let there be, and it happens, right? Just like a king commands, and it happens. This is how kings rule. But uh, something else that kings did in the ancient world is they would mark their domain, mark their kingdom by placing a statue or image of themselves in the place where they rule, uh, right? The presence of that statue or image of themselves was a sign to show that the king has authority over this place. And this is exactly what God does in the creation story. Towards the end of Genesis chapter 1, God creates humanity in his image. And he sets that image in the middle of creation as a sign that he is king over all that he has made. It's a sign of God's rule and authority. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So humanity is created in God's image to rule over creation as a sign of God's rule over creation. Humanity is the statue that God places on earth to tell the rest of creation, this is God's kingdom, right? Well, all of this language is also used in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, last week, when Daniel interprets the king's dream and specifically tells the king the meaning of that golden head, he tells Nebuchadnezzar, the God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory into your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky wherever they live he has made you ruler over them all you are that head of gold 
do you see the parallel with Genesis chapter 1 and what Daniel says in chapter 2? So here's what's going on. In chapter 2, Daniel essentially uses the dream interpretation as an opportunity to share the gospel with Nebuchadnezzar. The very same gospel that Jesus came preaching, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe, right? This is basically what Daniel is saying here. Daniel is saying to him, God is king, right? The God of heaven. God is king. And you, Nebuchadnezzar, have been made in his image. You've been made in his image to rule over things as a sign of his authority. That's who you are. That's why you've been placed where you are. And then at the end of Daniel chapter 2, it appears that the king has heard and responded to this gospel. In verse 47, it says, the king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you were able to reveal this mystery. Right? Looks like a good gospel response. He's heard the message that Daniel has preached and he's responding to it. But then we have Daniel chapter 3, which begins like this. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. Nebuchadnezzar has heard and responded to the gospel, but he makes the same mistake that we often make when we hear the gospel. He has taken what was meant to be a proclamation about God and God's kingdom and made it about himself. And this is what Christians have often done with the gospel. In all kinds of ways, across all different traditions, Charismatic Christianity has often preached a prosperity gospel. Uh, that good, The good news is essentially about health and wealth. It's about just needing to name it and claim it, right? You heard this kind of thing before. Mainline Christianity has often preached a progressive gospel where the good news is about human progress that typically mimics secular social movements about social justice or sexual liberty. Evangelical Christianity has often preached a preservation gospel where the good news is essentially about preserving my life. I'm getting saved. I'm going to heaven. And every one of these might have a semblance of truth to it, but ultimately they all make the same mistake. The gospel's about me. The gospel's about us. It's about our prosperity. It's about our progress. It's about our preservation. It's about our salvation. But the good news that Jesus preached, the good news of 
Scripture is about God. It's about who God is and what God is doing. The news is this. God is king. God is ruling. That's the news. It's good news because God is good. Because he's a good king. That's why it's good news. We miss the point of the gospel when we make it about us. And when we do, we do what Nebuchadnezzar did. Instead of being images that are meant to represent God's authority, we make images that represent our authority. Daniel chapter 3 emphasizes this over and over and over again. Seven times the text makes it clear, makes sure that we know this image is about Nebuchadnezzar. We're all trying to say his name. Nebuchadnezzar, right? Seven times. Verse 2, he summons the officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. Verse 3, they assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 4, as soon as you hear the music, fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. Verse 7, they fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. It keeps going. Verse 12, the Jews are now uh, brought in and it said, they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you set up. Verse 14, the king brings them in and asks them if it's true that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up. Then in verse 18, they respond and say, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. I'm exhausted, right? My goodness, could the story be more clear about who this image is about? It's about Nebuchadnezzar. And it's pointing to him. When we make the gospel about us, this is what we do. We, instead of being images that are meant to represent God's authority, we make false images that represent our authority. We end up building our own kingdoms instead of God's kingdom. I mean, how often has it seemed like Christians are more intent on pointing people to the church than to God? How often has it seemed like mission is measured by the number of people in the room rather than the depth of affection for God and the things of God. Churches run the risk of building their own kingdom instead of God's kingdom. Isn't it telling that in our culture, the word evangelical is often just a word for a particular group of voters 
rather than people who actually declare the good news of God. It's a good indication that elections have become a kind of false image that Christians are bowing down to and worshiping instead of God. And our world is filled with all kinds of these false images that we have set up as a picture of our own authority, and then we bow down to them like we're giving ourselves a good pat on the back. Right? But the problem for us, this came up in our uh, conversation hour last week, is that for us, these false images are rarely 90 feet tall and covered in gold. That'd be great because it'd just be really easy to avoid it. Like, don't see that giant thing, don't do that. They're much more subtle for us, aren't they? Uh, for us, they come in the form of these little smartphones that are in all of our pockets and tell us that the world is about us, right? They try to convince us that we can be all-knowing, we can be everywhere at the same time, omnipresent, right? We can be like God. That's what we're constantly told. It comes in the form of these little messages that the world revolves around you. Quick survey. How many of you have eaten somewhere where food was prepared for you this past week? Several people, okay. How many of you have ever used uh, something like Uber or a taxi to get somewhere? All right. How many of you have watched something for entertainment this past week? All right. These are all amazing things, right? They're great. But in the ancient world, every one of these things was only available for royalty. It was only kings who had meals prepared for them. It was only kings who had someone drive them around. It was only kings who had their own entertainment to watch, right? The world we live in is constantly telling us, you are king. You are a ruler. You're the one that all of this revolves around, right? I mean, that's the message through and through, the world that we live in. And although these may be good things, I love restaurants and TV shows just like everyone else, they may easily become these false images that are used to prop up ourselves and build up our kingdoms rather than point us to God or build his kingdom. The good news is not ultimately about us. It's about God and who God is. God is king, and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. That's the good news. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego seem to know this. They seem to understand this. Because when they are singled out by the other officials and interrogated by the king, look at their response in verse 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve 
is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. In verse 15, the king had asked, what God is going to be able to deliver you from my hands? Right? And the response is, our God. Our God can do that. Right? Our God is king. Our God is ruling. Right? They seem to know that this is the gospel. They really believe this. And though they do also go on to say that their God can and, and, and will save them, their faith is not even ultimately about their own salvation. It's not even ultimately about their own being saved because we've got to keep reading. In verse 18, they go on to say, but even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't save us, we want you to know, your majesty, I, I, I feel like that's probably sarcastic, that we will not serve your gods. We will not worship the image of gold you have set up. This is huge. We know that our God is king, but our faith is not in our deliverance. It's in his rule. They don't live into a prosperity gospel of health and wealth, naming and claiming their deliverance from fire. They don't live into a preservation gospel that's just about getting saved. They don't give into a progressive gospel that's just following the secular pressures around them. They don't live into a political gospel that sacrifices their integrity and their character in order to hold on to their positions in the king's court, because that's a temptation, isn't it? Rather, they live into the kingdom gospel. Our God is king. He's in charge, and we trust whatever he is going to do, whether it's saving us or not. We trust him. Our allegiance is to him and him alone. Because that's the good news. And so they're thrown into the furnace. But then, wasn't it three people that we threw in there? I see a fourth one. And he looks like a son of the gods. What is happening? in this moment. It's a mystery. The text doesn't tell us exactly what's happening. Nebuchadnezzar thinks it looks like some sort of angelic being is in there with them, and he goes on to say, the angel of their God has come to be with them. Uh, not quite sure what all that means, but throughout much of Christian history, it has been understood that this was not merely a son of the gods, nor was it merely a messenger of the God. But perhaps this was a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. Because isn't it just like Jesus to come and be with his people? Right in the middle of fire. Right in the middle of the flames. Isn't that where Jesus goes? He does not avoid 
the fire. He did not avoid the cross. He went right there, right to the heart of the place where we suffer and was there with us in it. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do a pretty good job of living into their calling to be in the image of God as they stand for and represent the true king of all things. But let's be honest, we haven't. We so often fail. We don't keep our allegiance to God. We're distracted by all kinds of other things. But when we have not been images of God, Jesus has. I love the way that Paul describes this in the book of Colossians. He says, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When we have failed, He has stood in our place because the Son is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation, right? He he is the one who perfectly lives into this call to carry the authority of God and point to the true king because he is the true king. In him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the perfect image of God. And he shows us how we are meant to be in the image of God. And while our image has been tarnished and broken, he restores us and redeems us and remakes us into his image. And how is it that Jesus rules? How is it that Jesus shows the authority of God. Well, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You see, in this passage, Nebuchadnezzar has the gospel presented to him one more time. And this time it's not in a dream or through the interpretation of a dream. It is something very real right in front of him that everyone else sees too. This God is king. He's the one in charge. 
And yet, at the end of the chapter, he still misses the point. He does point to that king. Verse 29, I decree all the people of any nation or language you say anything against that God, right? He's pointing to the king, but, but what happens? If they say something against him, well, then they're cut into pieces, their houses are turned into rubble. He's pointing to the king, but not in the way of the king. Jesus rules not by destroying those who are his enemies, but by dying for them. That's what it looks like to carry the authority of God, to live as one made in the image of God. God is king, and our lives are meant to point to that reality. It's what it means to be made in his image. And so as we hear the good news, it's not about us. It's about him. May we be remade into the image of God that our lives might testify to him and his kingdom. Amen.